to in the Old Testament, and that's in Daniel chapter 7. It's The main part is in verse 13, but I want to look at a few other verses. All right, Daniel chapter 7 is a chapter in the Old Testament that was very important to Jesus when he lived on the earth and he preached. In Daniel chapter 7, we have this, this revelation of the Son of Man who comes with the clouds and he comes before the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days gives this Son of Man a kingdom, dominion over all nations and over all people. And Jesus referred to this figure and to this passage throughout his entire career in ministry. I say career loosely because he he wasn't in the full-time ministry, so to speak, his whole life. But for about three years, he was full-time kingdom preaching and teaching, making disciples, right? His, his, His favorite reference to himself was this son of man, quote unquote. From Daniel chapter 7, it was his his favorite reference to himself, the Son of Man. So this is a very important figure. The context of this passage in Daniel 7 is that these four major beasts, these ugly animals that came up from the sea, that represented four ungodly Gentile empires, they were raging, one replaces the other, then the other replaces the other, then the fourth comes... And this little horn speaks out of the last beast. Okay, you could read all that for yourself. The point is that these thrones are set up over these beasts. The Ancient of Days comes into like a courtroom as the judge. And he sits as judge. The other thrones apparently have the elders or the sons of God, these angelic beings on them. And they're passing judgment on these nations. Everybody with me? And the nations are judged. They come from below. The Son of Man comes from the... Not below. He comes with the clouds of heaven. So the Son of Man, after judgment against these nations, He's given the kingdom of this uh, of the ancient of days and in partnership they will rule over these nations right so that that's that's the context here i could have read some of that in verse 9 after these beasts and then the one little horn that's uttering great boasts against the most high the thrones are set up the ancient of days meaning the eternal one takes his seat he has these glorified human features his vesture, white like snow, his head, uh, pure wool, his hair like pure wool. The throne has something like wheels that are burning with fire and there's a river of fire coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. Please, the reason why we do church the way we do church is because God is king. The, the, the clearer vision that we have of the majesty of God, the more we volunteer to be the people He wants us to be. And the definition of the church, according to Ephesians 4, right, the definition of the church comes directly from the enthronement, the majesty, the kingship of Jesus. Right? So we need this vision of majesty. As much as it may be referred indirectly, I've noticed that it gets little reference in the meat and potatoes preaching and teaching of your typical church. 
or your typical worship service. The, the kingship, the awe of God. So that sin is not just something you do wrong, but it's high treason. It's like there's a king who sits on the throne. We don't live in a democracy in this kingdom. We live in a monarchy. Now it just so happens that our, the great monarch is the, 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 the goodest, most patient, kind, empowering, loving, slow to anger, compassionate person in the universe. And sometimes we tend to take advantage of that. And in a lot of ways we should. And sometimes we do selfishly and carnally. But still, none of that negates the fact that he's the sovereign over our lives and over all the nations. One day we're all going to stand before him. Okay. My point is that what we do comes from this vision of God as king and Jesus, his son, the son of God as king at his right hand. Hello, welcome back, Olivia. Now remember, you're grading my sermon and we're starting at an A++. Okay? She's visiting, so I said, you must be here to grade the sermon. Okay. Right, so river of fire. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were open. So the court is sitting. and These nations are being judged with these open scrolls. I kept looking, Daniel says, the sound of the boastful words. The horn was speaking, got his attention. I kept looking until the beast was slain. This is the fourth empire in the vision that represents Rome. When that beast was slain, its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts... Their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. So there's going to be an overlap between the establishment of God's kingdom and the existence of the evil earthly kingdoms. It's going to be overlap. We're in that period now. So we want to maximize kingdom expression while we're in the period that overlaps the good kingdom and the hostility of the bad ones. I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion glory and a kingdom that all the peoples nations and those from every language might serve him. Amen. That's one man given all that dominion so that every single solitary human, in one sense, all of them that ever lived, would yield their lives to him. Now, some who did not believe and pledge their loyalty, it does not mean they will serve him voluntarily, it means they will be judged. They will be eternally penalized. But still, he's the reference point. It's not all the opinions of different religions and philosophy. Well, I believe this, and that's your truth. That doesn't exist. Even, Even the unsaved have their reference point on that day to this one man. And everyone left, all the angelic and the human children of God, all of them in the billions upon billions will be serving this one man will not be a a gigantic democracy. It will be a monarchy where Jesus is king. They're all serving him. This is our anchor. It's, It's not the way we do church. It's this king and what that kingdom implies for us practically.
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Let's continue having fun. And let's turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. Okay, if you want to go to Mark 14, you may go there now. Mark 14. Now, we'll kind of start in verse 53, but I'm going to skip around. Jesus has been arrested. Peter's following at a distance in verse 54. He's warming himself and all of that is going on. So now in verse 50, oh, excuse me, verse 55, yeah, the chief priests, now check this out, you guys. The chief priests and the whole council kept trying to get testimony against Jesus to put him to death and they weren't finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him saying, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with hands. And in three days, I'll build another one made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Don't you give an answer? What is it these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. What's happening here? What's happening? Jesus is on trial. Right? It's kind of ironic. The only just and righteous one is being judged by the ungodly. So his response at this moment, I mean, there's times he speaks, but the silence in this moment speaks volume. He, j- he just kept silent. That, that's insinuating, you're, this is a kangaroo court. The whole thing's a sham. I'm not the one on trial. In fact, he goes on when, when he's confronted more uh, bluntly. In verse, uh, okay, halfway through 61, again, the high priest was questioning him and saying, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. Do you recognize those words? Right? They're from Daniel 7. Who was on trial in Daniel 7? The nations. So what's Jesus here alluding to that for? He's saying, I'm not the one on trial here. You're the ones on trial. Okay. I'm the son of man. You're the beasts. And just because you set up this kangaroo sham court does not mean you're you're actually judging me. You're the ones being judged and soon you will see the son of man coming in the dominion. That God is going to vindicate me and judge you. Do you see the irony of what's happening here? So then he tears, the high priest tears his clothes. The high priest says, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. So it's this false judgment against Jesus. But ironically, this is the moment when he's being enthroned. You can't always go by what the eyes see. Jesus is king. And during this overlap period of tension, his kingship looks a certain way. 
we are called to bear the image of that kingship during this generation. All right? One final passage of Scripture. It's in Ephesians chapter 1. Should I go to that one? There's all kinds of passages in the New Testament that refer to the royalty of Jesus. In the beginning of Romans 1, Ephesians 1 is what we read a lot. There's Revelation 19 when he comes back with many diadems on his head. But in Ephesians 1, 17, somewhere in there where Paul's praying that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we might know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe... All of this is in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Young people discern Jesus is King. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the climactic moment of the Gospel. That's the good news. Jesus is King. That means all of our enemies have been defeated. And the one on our side who created us, loves us, and wants to give us life, he rules. So we're in pretty good shape. You see, it's good news. And for those who aren't in, it's like good news. Your enemies have been defeated. Your sins can be forgiven. If you yield, if you believe, you can come in and experience this new life and have the same hope we have. The point is, he is enthroned. It's not enough that he died and just forgave you of your sins. That's not, that's, that's crucial. It should be mentioned all the time. But it's not the end of the story. We make this gospel about King Jesus so often just something selfish that just meets our needs. And it does, but we can enjoy the meeting of our needs in a way that still yields to him as king rather than in a selfish way. Where it's like, just believe and go on your merry way. Receive your ticket to heaven. That's not the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom means this. It's all for King Jesus. What I receive is because he's king. And then what we do in response is also because he's king. So God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that... Well, I switched passages. And raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Praise God. I got seven components of the gospel that I'm going to list for you really quick. And give you some implications. Okay, you ready? If you take notes, get ready. If you memorize everything, get ready. If you can't do either one, get ready. Because Brian is recording this. And I even have some notes. I, I, I wrote an outline. Okay. There's one gospel. It's the gospel of the king. It's the foundation of all of life. It's the foundation of the church. It's the charter for the church. The gospel is everything. The gospel is Jesus in words. And if we're going to be the kind of church that he's called us to be, we have to be in concert with the person of Jesus as our foundation. How do we make that practical? We identify the gospel in all of its glory and we we take every component and we make every component of the gospel practical. That's the gospel that creates disciples and the church. If we have a partial gospel, we get partial disciples and partial church. 
If we have a full gospel, we get full disciples, full church. It's more challenging, but it's more glorious, and that's what we're going for. We have no idea what we signed up for. We think we know, but we don't. But that's okay. We're going to follow Jesus, even if sometimes at a distance. We're going to follow Jesus into this. I'm going to give you the list quickly, and then I'll go through a little less quickly. All right? There's one gospel. There's not four different gospels. Uh, there's, there's one gospel told four different ways by the by the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Technically, even the titles are not the gospel of Matthew, but the gospel according to Matthew. The gospel according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John. Then Paul gives his own explanations in Romans, Ephesians, in portions of 1 Corinthians, in in a big chunk of Philippians. Okay, this one big diamond with many, many, many cuts and beams of life coming through it. Shandai, that's so awesome, right? So we're, I'm going to distill some of the, the, the main components that are told different ways, uh, different angles at different times. Are you ready? Here, here you go. You know what the, the anchor part of the gospel is? According to the four gospels, the pre-existence of Jesus as God is a part of the gospel. Right? Number two, his Jewish pedigree is part of the gospel. Number three, his virgin conception and birth, gospel. Number four, his life. The whole, all number four is the way he lived. Mike read the verses for us. He went about doing good, healing all those oppressed of the devil, anointed by God. Right? So his, his, his deeds, his, his miracles, his teachings, a huge part of number four, and just the way he lived. Okay, number five, you guessed it, his death. Number six, his resurrection. And number seven, his ascension. The crowning achievement. The, the point, the, the, the glory to which Jacob's ladder was always leading. All those other six components. And the whole Jewish pedigree, you got the pre-existence of God into eternity. That was leading to the enthronement of Jesus as a man. That goes back pretty far. Like forever, he was planning for this son to become human and to be king as human. And then the Jewish pedigree puts us into the history of the Old Testament. The whole history of Israel, past, present, and future, is all for the sake of Jesus being king. Alright? Alright, so let's just say a few words about each component. Are you ready for that? Yes. Alright. Um... What was the first? No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Jesus, full divinity. Okay. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is God, the son. He is fully, eternally divine. Amen. John chapter one. This was where I told you young people that encounter with God that I had was on this issue. God made real to me the divinity of my Lord Jesus because demons were fighting over that issue in my life through other people. And when I encountered the word of the Lord, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, man, I mean, Jesus just became so real to me. I burst forth into something new and it's been a precious truth ever since here at Christmas time. Um, yes. Do, 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 do. Okay. Um, right. So, so, so the Son of God existed from forever as the Son. 
And the Gospels tell us that the Word became flesh. God came among His people. When I preached in Colorado a few weeks ago, I had a dream the night before I preached where I was telling the pastor of the church, I knew it was from the Lord. But the the dream began just after he asked me a question about the Gospels. And I knew that question was there, even though the dream didn't begin until that moment when I was going to answer. And I said, it's not just John that, that proclaims that Jesus is God. Matthew and Luke have two powerful references to the divinity of Jesus. And one, I mean, they're elsewhere too, you understand. But there were two references the Spirit was highlighting. Number one was what we sang and spoke about today during worship. Emmanuel. Jesus' name is Emmanuel. God with us. That's the gospel. That God fulfilled his promises and came and dwelt among his people. And he continues to do so. It's not just angels. God is with us right now. He's okay. He's sitting in like all the pews right now. Not just where we're sitting, but even the empty spaces. He's sitting here. And he's living inside our hearts and bodies. If we're believers, very God is in our midst right now. Because that's what the gospel teaches us. That's powerful. And it's something that we should keep close to our hearts, both out of the fear of the Lord and out of the absolute delight in the Lord that God is with us. The other reference, I don't know if you might be able to guess it, but I don't have time to wait. In Luke chapter 2, when the angels make the announcement to the shepherds, today there is born for you in the city of David a Savior whose name is Christ the Lord. He is Christ the Lord. In Aramaic or or Hebrew that was probably said, he is Moshiach Yahweh. He's not just a, a human son of David. He is Yahweh, the Messiah, son of David. Praise God. The Messiah is God. God the Son, but God nonetheless. And therefore, he is worthy of our praise and worship. And the gospel reminds us that God, very God, is in our midst. Which also reminds us, something we'll come back to, that we are the temple of God himself. We're, we're not just an institution or an organization. We're the house of God. May the Lord help us peel back the layers because the reality doesn't change. Our awareness of it changes. I mean, part of us, if we really... Uh, have you ever experienced moments where it really touches you on a deeper level? And it's like, I don't know if I could go on. And then the Lord has to comfort you. Say, no, no, I'm on your side. I, I love you. Because the reality that he's God and he's in our midst can be overwhelming. But it's something that is worth pursuing. And like, again, I think Sam was praying this. This isn't a fantasy. This is reality. And discipleship means becoming more acquainted with that reality. Number two, the Jewish pedigree of Jesus is crucial to the gospel. Matthew opens up his whole gospel with the the family tree. Luke has it a couple of chapters in, in chapter three. But the family tree of Jesus goes back to Abraham and David. And Luke goes all the way back to Adam. But it passes through the line of Shem, of course. Right? We have Jewish roots to our faith. Right, That tells us, number one, that God has an eternal plan. He's been planning this day all along. Our day from Jesus, really from Pentecost on, that's the day God was planning all along until Jesus came back. 
So there's an eternal purpose to which we belong. We have purpose. Amen. The second thing that teaches uh, us is that we should have a burden for Israel. should pray for Israel's salvation. And as a mostly Gentile work in in the Gentile world, we should be as authentic as we know how to be in the Holy Spirit so that we give Israel something enough to be jealous. They should be saying, you know what, I don't, if they have to say this at first, I don't buy that Jesus is Messiah, but you all are clearly blessed with the blessings of Abraham. So we have to reconsider. We have to see ourselves not only with purpose from the past, but going somewhere. And if we're in love with the appearing of Jesus, then we should be praying for Israel's salvation and should be somehow connected with that endeavor. All right. Jesus is son of Abraham, son of David. He's the fulfillment of Israel's story, but he keeps the story going. In fact, he confirms it. Amen. We're going to be apostolic. Okay. The Jewish issue isn't a fetish. It's part of the gospel. What's the third part? Do you guys remember? Virgin conception and birth, of course, again, that affirms that Jesus is fully God. He is also fully human. All right, his divinity does not take away from his humanity. God created all humans with the capacity that one day he could become one of us without diminishing his divinity. That's how much in God's image we're made that God himself could become one of us forever. Jesus is forever human. He's the truest human that ever lived. And right now he's the truest one that there is because he has a glorified body. Right. So that teaches us two things. Number one, again, just that Jesus was conceived of the spirit as a human. We are born again by the Spirit. We must be born again. And it gives us a hope. Am I saying this right? Yes. That Jesus... No, I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's just keep it right there. We must be born again of the Spirit. But it means we are spiritual children of God. What I mean by that is we're God's children with the Spirit. We're not just Christian humans. Like we're affiliated with a religion. We are people of the Spirit. The Spirit should be tangible to us. Real. Present. Powerful. Praise God. We are born of the Spirit. We are spirit people. Paul calls us in 1 Corinthians. Amen. Amen. So this is the way we honor Jesus with the virgin conception and birth. But it also reminds us we're born of the Spirit. What number am I on? Is that three? Number four is the the life teachings and deeds of Jesus. Am I right? I'm not skipping anything, am I? Jesus lived as a human. He went about doing good. He healed all those who were oppressed of the devil. Right? He calls us to copy his life. That's what his life means. First of all, he lived fully as a human. That, that's gospel to us. But secondly, that tells us we're called to the same kind of life. This is what we believe here. This is kingdom talk. If we're born of the Spirit under the virgin birth, then we can also copy Jesus, at least when we're all, you know, if we're working together, we might have different gifts, but we can be like Jesus in this life. Amen. And by the way, let me offer something else here. Jesus gave a lot of teachings during his life. Those teachings are our inheritance to obey. The fact that Jesus lived and taught means we are called as the, as like the hallmark, not movie, but the hallmark of our lives. 
This is the bottom line. Obedience. Jesus gave words. How am I doing, Olivia? Thumbs up so far. Because I'm all, I gotta be, yeah. Yeah. Jesus said, teach them to observe everything I commanded you. Obedience is the bottom line. Paul said, I want to come to Rome because my whole ministry is about bringing to pass the obedience of the Gentiles by faith. It's not just believing under some Christian evangelical tradition. It's the faith that obeys is the only kind of faith that pledges loyalty to King Jesus. Right? So the fact that Jesus taught means that disciples obey. Our lives are for the purpose of obeying Jesus. Paul said the reason for our existence, Ephesians 1.3, is, is to be holy and blameless before him in love. Amen. So we should be characterized by obeying the teachings of Jesus. Them red letters are powerful to us. They're the headwaters that, that lead even to the rest of the New Testament, which is equally inspired, equally important. But you've got to start with Jesus, man. If he teaches us to forgive, to humble ourselves, then those are our teachings. We, we cherish those. We obey those. Come on. Lord, forgive us for disobeying your teachings. Give us a, a, a fresh delight to obey your teachings. Okay. Life and then the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus proclaims to us that God made provision for our sins to be forgiven when we believe. The blood of Jesus was the only blood that would have ever worked to cover over our sins. I believe in the death of Jesus is the death of the entire old human race without getting rid of the humans that believe so that we could both die but still live. Because Jesus, our representative, died. That is good news. That in one act of yielding faith to him, a life of moral criminality or any other kind of criminality, disobedience, sin, wickedness, ugly behavior, destruction to other people can be forgiven as if it never occurred in one moment because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's good news. And the death of Jesus teaches these things. So we praise God for that. But what does the death of Jesus imply for us uh, practically? We are called to the same yielding to God. To carry our own crosses and live not religiously, but covenantally. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. So he's not asking for a commitment. He's calling us to surrender. That's what the cross teaches us. We die to the world and we live for him. Amen? Amen. So there's a practical application. You know, we should talk about the rest, but if we stopped right there, we'd have all the... New Testament church we needed if we just all lived the cross. So Lord, have mercy on me for living in any way out of sync with your cross, but rather in harmony with my own selfish agenda. So that's what the cross speaks to us. If we have the cross, if we have that aspect of Jesus pumping like the heart through our lives, we don't even have to talk so much about the way the body should be formulated, a lot of it would just come naturally. Because there's no other way to live a life of love and service than to to be the church that He calls us to be. But we move from the death, of course, to the resurrection. The resurrection means that Jesus in Romans 1 is declared the Son of God. He's declared as King. 
He's conquered the foes by dying. He, he overcame sin, as we already said, for those who believe. But he also, therefore, conquered death and the devil. And so the resurrection is God's vindication. It's the announcement that Jesus is king. He is alive from the dead. He'll never die again. Now he could lead his people through a new exodus. He has a new body which gives us hope that we will rise from the dead. And it means, practically, that we have a whole new order of life in our souls. We are not the old humanity trying to do a new thing. We're a new humanity according to Romans 6. That's what resurrection means for us practically. And it's setting us up for the family thing. Because if we're going to be newly human as a family, we must first be newly human as individuals. Gospel. And number seven, Jesus ascended to the throne of God, to, to, to the... To his throne at the right hand of God. He, he was exalted. We sang about it today. You know, we, we sometimes think like just in terms of theology, which in one sense is good, but the way I mean it is we think of these songs like he's glorified, he's exalted. We just kind of think of it as like he's up there. But those words specifically mean he's, he's sitting on a throne as king. He's like, he's king of China right now. He's king of America, not, not, Natasha is not queen of America, which is an old inside joke. I'll explain that later. Jesus is king of all the Americas. He's king of the Middle East. He is king of Australia. I mean, you name it. He's the king and Lord. That's what those words mean. That implies a covenant people. The ascension, very specifically, according to Psalm 110 and Psalm 68, But Ephesians 4 especially, that the formulation of the church as a family is the implication of the enthronement of Jesus as king. And that is why we do what we do. We do what we do, which is profound in and of itself. But it's why we do what we do. Seven components of the gospel, of the gospel. The enthronement implies more than discipleship, but the formulation of a family. If Jesus is king, there has to be a covenant tribe. People have to live that out to give him the honor as king. He deserves more than an institution and just attending church at our choice. He deserves covenantal connections that imply he's king. By this, they will know you're my disciples. Covenantal connection. 